0: Our passage this morning is from Mark chapter eight, verses 27 through chapter nine, verse one. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist and others say, Elijah, I'm sorry, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if any one would come after me let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul for what can a man give in return for his soul For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they come see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well good morning. you may have a seat it 's great to be with you. Uh, my name is jeff i 'm one of the pastors here if i haven 't had the pleasure of meeting you i 'd love to be able to do so before the morning is done. We are as you uh, see are back in the study of our uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so let me pray and then we will see what the Lord has for us this morning. Father, thank you so much for my brothers and sisters and uh, their presence here uh, their desire as you have uh, woken them up this morning and put in them the conviction of gathering under your good care and under your banner and so we pray that this would be uh, an ongoing occasion for joyful worship this morning even as we uh, open your word and, and see uh, this living and active word and what it has for us this morning spirit we pray that you would have your way with our hearts uh, that it would be encouragement whether that be conviction, exhortation, even challenge this morning over how we tend to see Jesus and how we think about what it means to follow him. And so, Father, we need your help. Will you give us the eyes to see what you would have for us this morning? And we love you. We're grateful that you answer our prayers. You answer them in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this is uh, in some ways a pivotal part of uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We've been kind of going through Mark over the past several months. We started back in September. And the gospel of Mark, uh, if you will, is generally, most most commentators or theologians will generally divide Mark into three different uh, sections. And so we've just ended one of the big sections of Mark, uh, chapters 1 through 8, uh, which uh, t- really take place in and around Galilee and Jesus obviously being very active, healing and casting out demons. And. Uh, even uh, rising people from the dead. Uh, And so we've seen these real quick, quick shots of Jesus and his ministry. Uh, This morning, we're beginning the second part of Mark, the second big section, and uh, a lot of commentators will describe this section as the on the way section of Mark, because over the next couple of chapters, what we'll see over and over again is that Jesus and his disciples are on their way they're on their way to Jerusalem, which will eventually uh, get us to the third part of Mark when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and we know what happens after that. The question that we've been asking over and over again, not just we pulling this out of thin air, but the question that uh, Mark has compelled us to ask over and over again is who is this Jesus? Who is this man? Who is this king? He is come to bring a kingdom, but who is Jesus? And now we have the definitive answer from Peter. In some ways, we've been waiting eight chapters. We've been anticipating this. We've been anxious for it. And Peter gives us the answer. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. Jesus confesses, you are the Christ And so we want to see more clearly what does that mean. Because as we go on, not only today, but for the next several weeks, we're going to get uh, a clearer and clearer picture of what it means to say that Jesus is the Christ. What kind of king is Jesus? And what kind of people are his followers? Today, our our passage actually gives us uh, a picture of Christ- Christiology, which is basically the study of Christ, the the way in which we can understand who Jesus is, and we also have in this passage discipleship. What is discipleship? Who is Christ? What does it mean to follow him? And so here is the main idea. If you happen to grab one of those uh, handouts on the way in, the main idea is on there, and it is this, as goes the king, so go his people. As goes the king, so go his people. Let's dive in this text this morning, and let me give you the first point, the first few blanks on your handout to fill out. The first point is this, Peter understands the who, but not the what and the how. We definitely hear from Peter that he understands the who, but not the what and the how. So look at the text with me again in verse 27. We see that Jesus is on the way. That's going to be, again, the phrase that we'll see over and over again for the next several weeks. He's on his way with the disciples, and he asks this question, who do people say that I am? Uh, It's clear that Jesus has caused quite a stir. Uh, He's very well known at this point. And so he's asking his disciples, as you've been with me, who do people say that I am? And and the disciples answer with actually some pretty important names and titles and roles. These are all honorable, respectable people, the prophets of the Old Testament, Elijah, John the Baptist. So people in some ways are understanding that Jesus is a special man. He, he is carrying with him some, some gravitas, but Jesus clearly is looking for a different answer because he isn't satisfied from hearing what the people say. He wants to know, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? And so he asks them that there in verse 29, and Peter answers, you are the Christ. This is the first time we read that word Christ in the Gospel of Mark since the very beginning. Mark. Chapter 1, verse 1 is the last time we read the word Christ in the Gospel of Mark. This is the Christ. Peter is confessing correctly Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the long-awaited son of God. Not, not in the Roman sense. We talked about this way back when in chapter one that even the, the, even the Romans would call the Caesar a son of God. But this, uh, Peter is confessing, is the son of God. This is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, one that has come to save us. And so what a moment of joy, what a moment uh, to Mark, what an incredible encouragement that after all the fumbling and bumbling and the misunderstanding that Peter understands who Jesus is. This would be quite the occasion for celebration. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, the same story, Jesus rejoices that the Father has revealed this to Peter. And so there is a great rejoicing that Peter is able to confess that you are the Christ. But then what's curious is in verse 30, you would think that this is a a watershed moment. This is a high mark and let's celebrate, let's share this news. But Jesus in verse 30 says, don't tell anybody. (laughs) Don't you you say anything about this to anybody. Why, Why would he do such a thing? Well, Peter understands the identity of Jesus. He understands the who but he has not gotten the what and the how. He understands Jesus' identity correctly, but not his nature. Jesus has, the right, or Peter has the right title, but the wrong understanding of what kind of Messiah is here. And starting in verse 31, Jesus gives uh, the first of what we can see as uh, the passion predictions. So this is the, the first one. Over the next few chapters, he'll do this two more times where Jesus plainly tells his disciples and followers what is to happen. And you can see there in verse 31 that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things Be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. Then he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter, literally, uh, the, the, the Greek word there really uh, indicates that this wasn't a gentle uh, kind of taking aside. This was almost like a strong arming of Jesus, like an urgent, hey, you need to come with me right now. I'm going to pull you aside and rebuke you. This is strong language. Peter is concerned. Peter is uh, urgently wanting to correct this notion that the Son of Man wouldn't suffer and be killed. But then Jesus in verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Now, Peter had no category for a suffering Messiah. He didn't have a category for it. It wasn't as if he had understood that at one point of his life and had kind of moved away from it. It is literally that he had no category for a Messiah to come and to be killed. Jesus says that he is the the Son of Man. That's an important title that Jesus gives himself all throughout the Gospel of Mark. And we've talked about this. It's been a while, but back in chapter 1, when we've seen this uh, title, Son of Man, uh, what Mark is wanting to uh, impose upon us and have us to remember is that back in Daniel 7, so back in the Old Testament, if you go to Daniel 7, you will see and read about this Son of Man. And we read about this Son of Man who would come in glory and power and dominion and have an everlasting kingdom. So Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man. And everyone who hears that title has immediately a word picture associated with the Son of Man, power, dominion, authority. And then Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer and be killed. <clears throat> and this would automatically raise in those who heard this and, and the Jews that have been brought up and understanding uh, who this Messiah is going to be, the Son of Man. And now all of a sudden, we're getting this uh, notion that the Son of Man will suffer. This is the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. A lot of you might be familiar with that. In Isaiah, we we hear about a suffering servant, the one who is pierced and the one who is rejected and the one who uh, was despised. But but here, this is going to help us understand Peter's dilemma in this moment. There, up to this point, had never been a teaching that brought the Son of Man, dominion, power, and authority alongside with the suffering servant and had them be the Messiah. There was no such teaching up until this point. Jesus is saying that son of man and the suffering servant are indeed the same person, that he is that person. He is the son of man and the suffering servant in one. And he must suffer. He must be killed Peter, in his rebuke of Jesus, is looking for power without weakness. He's looking for glory without suffering. He's looking for a crown without the cross. All his life, Peter was taught that this Messiah would come in great strength. This is what we're talking about. The, the Messiah was someone who would come in with military strength. He'd be a nationalistic ruler this was the picture that he and the Jews had, and here Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's someone that comes in in weakness, someone that must suffer, and so Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus doesn't put up with it very long, though, because uh, we, we see him immediately rebuke Peter for this sentiment. What, what Peter doesn't understand And maybe what you and I have a hard time understanding at times as well is that the way is the way of the cross. That the way is a way of suffering and of dying to ourselves and of weakness. Peter, in this passage, is doing uh, what we all do in our flesh. This is something that I'm certainly guilty of, and that is twisting God's word to fit our particular paradigm. It's uh, misusing and manipulating scripture to fit our own understanding of truth. Sometimes we do that knowingly, a lot of times we do it unknowingly. That we have this picture of what the Christian life should look like. We have this picture of who Jesus is, and we read about him. And instead of submitting to the authority of God's word, we twist it and manipulate it and try to get it to fit our particular paradigm. And Jesus says that this is the way of Satan. This is Satan's calling card to take what God said and manipulate it and twist it into something altogether different. This is the way of Satan. Peter, and he's saying to Peter, you're setting your mind not on things of God, but on things of man. And so we are all prone to pursue and worship a king that's made in our image. We're all prone to hold up and worship a God that, is after our own heart, one that we've fashioned, one that we have set up. And so we should expect that Jesus will at times confront and challenge our preconceived presumptions and paradigms just like Peter. Let me repeat that again. We should expect that Jesus will at times confront you and me and challenge you and me based on our preconceived presumptions and our preconceived paradigms about who Jesus is and what his kingdom is like. We should expect that at times we will be challenged and confronted by Jesus. You know, Peter is is not only confounded here by what Jesus says about the nature of the Son of Man— I also think that Peter is quite upset about who Jesus says is going to give him over, about who Jesus says is going to make him suffer. It's the religious leaders. It's the ones that Peter has listened to most of his life, perhaps. It's the religious leaders that he has learned the Torah, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. These are the people that have taught him, Most of his life, surely they could not be wrong about this. These are are people that Peter has listened to and trusted. Some of you will have to come to grips with some really bad theology that maybe you grew up with. I've talked to some of you. Some of you have grown up uh, in a context, maybe in a church, maybe it was taught at home and it was really bad theology. It was an incorrect picture of Christianity, of who Jesus is. Maybe it was this idea that the the gospel is through power. The gospel uh, is manifest here uh, on earth in worldly power, in political power or strength. Maybe the bad theology kind of translated in your life to the uh, don't let them see you weak Christianity. Don't let them see you suffer or be weak. This is a stiff upper lip Christianity. This is a put out your, your best foot forward Christianity. This is the win at all costs Christianity. Maybe we heard that growing up. Maybe we even hear it today. We, we hear the woman on that podcast say something. We hear the man on YouTube say something similar to us. Friends, I'm convinced that there are many today that if they were here with Jesus and the disciples and they heard Jesus say that he must suffer and must be killed, that they would call that a loser theology. They would look at Jesus and say, that's for losers. That's not the way for me. There are actually, uh, there, there are actually people who are saying that very thing about uh, the church and those in the church who understand that the way of faith, the way of our faith in this life is a way of weakness and suffering. And so there are some in evangelicalism who uh, are saying that that's a loser theology. That Christians should be winning all the time even if we fight with the weapons and use the language of the world. I want you to hear me. This is not an argument for Christians to retreat into the background or some type of quietism or removing ourselves from the public square or being uh, pushovers and have people uh, use us as a doormat. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is that the kingdom of God is sown in weakness, but rest assured, it is winning. It is winning. But clearly, Jesus here, in his rebuke of Peter and the disciples, is showing us that he has revolutionized what it means to win. It means something differently than the human inclination in our flesh thinks about when we think about winning. And clearly, it's how we win that's as important as the winning itself. This is not loser theology, so Jesus would, would have none of it from Peter. Peter uh, says, uh, no, no, no. I'm rebuking this whole idea that the Son of Man is going to suffer and die. And so Jesus, yes, has a harsh word for Peter. He identifies Peter's rebuke, Peter's word, with Satan. That's harsh. There's no way around it. It's, it's confronting Peter in very stark ways. And so again, let me me caution you, let me caution my own heart that if you've never come to church or you've never read your Bible and have had your world turned upside down by Jesus, beware. Beware. And what I'm not saying is that we, uh, when we come to church every Sunday or when we open our Bible tomorrow morning for our quiet time, that we should expect to get a different theology each time. Uh, that we do understand more and more with the power of the Holy Spirit and his insight who Jesus is. So I'm not saying that we are constantly changing our theology, but what I am saying is that we are always going to have to fight against that fleshly inclination to make Jesus in our own image. That we will have to fight for the rest of our life against making Jesus into our own image. And so lest we think that we would never be called Satan by Jesus. I've I've read this passage for several years, and uh, I think inevitably we tend to look at this and go, gosh, Peter, come on. How bold, how stupid. Don't you know who you're talking to? And yet, if we're honest and I pray that we are, I would be right there. That Jesus calling me Satan actually isn't the worst thing that could ever be said of me. Now you might think, wait a minute, what, what are you saying there? That Jesus calling you Satan seems to be very harsh, seems to be damning and condemning. But let me, let me argue from this text that Jesus calling Peter Satan is not the worst thing in the world because... It is severe, but it's also quite merciful. And how do I get there? Look at verse 33. Six words right there at the beginning, but turning and seeing his disciples. Yeah, he has rebuked Peter and no uncertain words, but he has turned to his disciples and not away from them. He hasn't turned his face away from his followers. He wants to show them the way. He wants them to get it. He is going to graciously and patiently walk this out with them. And so is he confronting or challenging you today? Are you walking in a season where you're really wrestling with uh, the nature of God's kingdom? What Jesus has called us to do, who he has called us to be in this world, at this time, in this culture. Is he confronting you? Is he challenging you this morning? Let me propose that that's actually not, not a bad place to be at all. Because his face is turned toward you. And he desires for you to know these things. The cross, Jesus says here, is a must. He must suffer. And so as goes the king, so go his people. Having now a better picture of who this Jesus is, he is the son of man, he is the suffering servant, he has come, he must suffer, he must be killed. Then, beginning in verse 34, Jesus talks about what does it mean to follow him. So here's point number two on your handout. Jesus says discipleship is denying and dying, denying and dying. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I think the the question that naturally flows out of that verse is, what does it mean to deny yourself? I think it's really important that we get an accurate picture of what that means. There might be several different ways in which we might answer, uh, what does it look like to deny yourself? Well, let me, let me say what it's not. It's not a self-abasement. It's not a self-hatred. Uh, we could take that in a really sinful direction and think to deny ourselves is actually hate ourselves. That's not what the text is saying. This is also not a reframing of all suffering and all pain or all unpleasantness as discipleship. This this can be and has been used uh, by people in the past to kind of justify kind of the, I'm suffering with Jesus, I'm suffering for him, and my whole life is a drudge and Uh, Here I am, I'm suffering for Jesus, and this person seemingly always has a frown on their face. Uh, Whatever suffering has come into the life, they're, they're seeing that as suffering for Jesus. And Jesus does allow suffering into our lives, but that's not what the text is talking about here. It's also not talking about some sort of mysticism, some sort of, you know, I'm gonna deny myself and kind of float along on the clouds and disembodiment. This is not like a stoicism. So it's not those things, what is this? To deny yourself is to go deep. It's actually using identity language. So the idea here is to deny yourself is to disown the wrong identity. To deny yourself isn't, I'm going to give up sweets for Lent, although maybe you will and maybe that is a good thing. To deny yourself is to recognize where in your life have you built an identity on faulty ground? Where in your life have you built your own identity? Where you've cultivated for public consumption and curated on social media an identity? To deny yourself is a relinquishing of the sovereign self. Have you set yourself up as sovereign? Are you the king? Are you in charge? To deny yourself is to relinquish that. It's a renouncement. It's a renouncing of identity idols. And this might be, as we've said so often, this idea of denying yourself, of rejecting an identity that you have created, might just be the most countercultural thing one can do in this time and age where we've talked about it so much. The individualism that we are inculcated in, that we uh, see that we're the ones that need to uh, create our own identity, that we need to look inside ourselves. We need to to understand that this is the follow your heart generation. This is the you-do-you age. This is not just offensive, or not just hard, but it's offensive. It's always been hard to deny yourself. But even in our time and age now, it's not just hard, it's offensive for so many. And yet we see here, we don't have a choice. Anyone who is to come after Jesus must deny themselves. So what does this look like? Because we could have uh, kind of this playing out at 30,000 feet, but definitely always want a desire to bring it down to street level, where we walk and talk and have our way. What does this look like to deny yourself? maybe it looks like to the one who does worship the idol of sexuality in our world, who has banked their hopes on lusts and pleasure, who fears the loneliness that could come from walking away from certain communities and groups of people. Lovingly, Jesus says to such a person, deny that self, take up your cross, and follow me. Maybe it's... To the brother who organizes his whole life around comfort and wealth and status, who has found a a stronghold in in a certain neighborhood that they live, or a house, or a wardrobe, this is someone who has nightmares about the dollar amounts in their bank account, whose mind is constantly preoccupied with the the end-of-the-evening drink and TV show on the couch. Deny building your life around those things, Jesus says. Take up your cross and follow me. To the mother who has put the weight of the world on her children, who rises or falls based on her children's behavior and performance, who is constantly measuring herself up against other families and who is terrified of her kids failing in life, Jesus says to you, deny making your family your identity take up your cross and follow me. Maybe it's to the preacher who, appro- who worships an approval idol, whose hopes are built on preaching the best sermon, whose greatest pleasure is being liked by others and whose greatest misery is disapproval. To that man, I say, Lord, help me to deny myself and take up my cross and follow you. Jesus says, discipleship is denying. We will either deny ourselves or we will deny him. Those are the choices we have. And of course, we know deeper and deeper into Mark that Peter will deny, not himself, but his Savior three times. We will deny ourselves or deny him. Discipleship is the cruciform life. Discipleship is cross-bearing, so that means that discipleship is of the things of dying. The remarkable paradox is that you lose your life in order to ultimately save it. That's what Jesus is saying here. That is a paradox. You lose your life in order to save it. You lose your life, and, and certainly for the readers of Mark at this time, as we've talked about, the audience, the original audience, certainly knew people that were physically losing their life for the sake of the gospel. For their faith, they were, they were seeing uh, men and women crucified and killed, and so to lose your life may very well mean you lose your life, that you die. But it might mean losing a job, might be, it might mean losing face with a family member. It's a type of death. It is a type of death. We die to this world and ourselves with Christ in order to gain eternal life in his kingdom. There's no other way. We must renounce the citizenship we have in this world and know that we die to that as we live as citizens of his kingdom. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Some of you may have heard that. C.S. Lewis says in mere Christianity, nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Jesus says in John 12, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Obviously, friends, this is a weighty thing to consider. It's it's seemingly impossible, and I uh, I would commend to you that it is impossible. It is impossible to do such things apart from God. That we are only able to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow him because of the faith that he has given us as a gift. That without the gift of repentance and faith, without the Holy Spirit working in us to bring about are denying and dying, these things are impossible. But the Spirit graciously works through us to allow us to deny ourselves, to die to ourselves, in order that we would become our truest self, our most beautiful self, the self that we were created to be, that we are being recreated and reformed and reimagined into Christ-likeness. This is who we were meant to be. This is the beautiful invitation into being a disciple of Jesus, of life to be found as one of his in his church. To take up your cross is to also take up his yoke. His burden is light. And his commandments are not burdensome at all. And so when we read, deny ourselves, take up our cross, this is meant to be a joy. It's meant to enter into something holy and sacred and altogether beautiful that we take up our cross, yes, but we're taking up his yoke at the same time, his easy burden and light yoke. But the cross is a must. And so we can't deny that the cross certainly symbolizes something quite serious, deadly, But this is not bad news. We could read it as bad news, that we, here we are, we've come in, we we are being reminded that we have to die to ourselves, that the way that we so often are living during the week, we need to renounce those idols and that image. We need to take up a cross, which is an instrument of murder and persecution. And follow Jesus. And we could read that and understand that as something really heavy and burdensome and, and bad news. But friends, this is not bad news. Because, point number three, the cross is a must for victory, love, and hope. That is what I want us to look at as we look at verse nine or chapter nine, verse one. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, we, we should ask the question this is actually a, a verse that has confounded many theologians. What is Jesus talking about here? What does he mean when he says that uh, those, uh, some who are standing here, will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God? Well, we know what it can't mean. It can't mean that Jesus is talking about the second return, the second coming, because uh, all the people that were standing there died, and we're still waiting for Jesus to return. So we know that that's not what he's talking about. Some people think he's talking about uh, the transfiguration, which is the next passage, that uh, maybe he's talking about Peter, James, and John. That they're, they're, they're there, and they're about to see uh, the kingdom of God coming in power in the transfiguration. What is the kingdom of God come with power? I believe that Jesus is talking about the cross in chapter 9, verse 1. I thought that the cross was about death and punishment and weakness and shame. the cross is the enthronement of our king. The cross is the enthronement ceremony of King Jesus. Now, that might really do a number on your preconceived thoughts coming in, but, but Jesus in this whole passage is talking about weakness, and dying, and suffering, and rejecting, and yet we know the cross is victory. It's Christus Victor—that's a term that uh, has been passed down through the millennia—that Jesus has come as the victorious King, and how has He come as a victorious King by dying on a cross? That we read that uh, uh, that He triumphed over evil on the cross, that He triumphed over the devil himself and over the evil dominions. The cross is the power of God unto salvation. The cross shows us most powerfully the depths and the height and the width of God's glory. The cross is not loser theology. It is the emblem of God's economy where weakness is strength, where shame becomes honor, Indeed, the cross is only shameful to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to the wisdom of the world. But the cross is a must for victory. And so the cross is victory. But not only that, the cross is a must for love. Where do I get that? True love. Is represented here in this passage. We said early on in Mark that behind Jesus coming into the world and building a kingdom and restoring Shalom was this invitation from God to call us into this love story This triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit from eternity past in perfect relationship, in perfect harmony, in perfect love. God is love, and we've been invited into that story. But we know that sin has disrupted that story, has fractured it, has broken it altogether. That sin coming into this world has prevented us from enjoying that shalom, has has prevented us from enjoying truly that love. But that's where the father sent the son to pay a penalty that we could not. He didn't have to do this. We know that God, fully sufficient in and of the persons of the Trinity, did not need to, did not have any dependence on you or me, but out of the overflow of who he is and his nature, chose to send his son to die for us in order to call us into this love relationship. He couldn't help himself because God is love, and so Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. He was denied by the Father on the cross, so that you and I would never be. He lost his life to save ours, and that 's why this gross instrument of shameful punishment is a some symbol of love. This is how. Peter and the disciples and those that Mark is writing to under the uh, dominion of Nero at the time can look at something as ugly and menacing as the cross, and now we see love because that's where Jesus goes for you and for me. It's the symbol of victory, of love, and finally of hope. The cross is a must for hope. What what Peter seems to ignore altogether when he hears Jesus talk about that the Son of Man must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed, it seems that Peter has uh, not heard Jesus say, and then after three days, rise again. It seems like uh, Peter doesn't, that doesn't compute in Peter's mind, and yet I would argue that there is no resurrection without the cross but Jesus never speaks of death, divorced from the resurrection. Now, Jesus does say, yes, the Son of Man will suffer, will die, be rejected, delivered up. And on three days later, rise again. This is our blessed hope that we are bound up in Christ. So, yes, we, we die with him. We deny ourselves, we pick up our cross, and in doing so, our identity is now in Jesus. His life is mine. His life is yours. But we are raised with him to new life. We talk about this so often, that we die to uh, the death that we deserve, that Jesus has done that on our behalf and in our identifying with him in his death, but also his resurrection. There's weeping for a night, but joy in the morning. This is our beautiful hope. We are on the way here in this part of Mark. We're on the way. We're going to hear from Jesus, uh, teach and instruct his disciples for the next several chapters. We're also on the way. We are on the way with Jesus, showing us who he is, showing us who we are to be as his followers all the way to glory when he comes again. And that is our hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this beautiful picture of who you are, what you have been pleased to do, that the plan of the father to send the son must happen in order to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And so for that, we say thank you. And we are humbled that you would do such a thing for us. That we see your defeat of the devil on the cross, that you're victorious, that we see your immense love for us, and we also see the hope that comes with death and resurrection. And so help us to deny ourselves Help us to take up our cross. Help us to uh, put to death the identity that we've built for ourselves and for those around us that we have faulty theology at times that we have wrong assumptions about Jesus that we have built our life on sand. Will you help us to build it on solid ground, which is Christ. In Spirit, we need your help. So I, I pray that you would help us. Thank you. We love you. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.